Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. I know on Facebook I promised an interview this month with Joy Harjo. Unfortunately, scheduling conflicts have delayed our conversation. I do hope to get to that interview quite soon. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrew Newman. He's Associate Professor of English at Stony Brook University in New York, and last year, the University of Nebraska Press published his new book called On Records, Delaware Indians, Colonists, and the Media of History and Memory. By way of introduction, a few words on a contemporary indigenous movement with some resonance to what we'll be discussing here. Led by the Onondaga Nation and their allies, the two-row wampum renewal campaign is a year-long educational effort that culminates in a canoe trip down the Hudson River from Albany to New York Harbor that commemorates the 400th anniversary of the first treaty between European settlers, in this case the Dutch, and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, or the Iroquois League, of which the Onondagas are a part. From the sidelines of this important movement for sovereignty and environmental restoration, Two academics with a very long track record of dismissing Haudenosaunee oral traditions have called an attendant Dutch document claimed to be written around the time of the Wampum Agreement to be fraudulent. For William Starna and Charles Gehring, only a European document is trustworthy, given that the Wampum Belt that the Onondagas hold records no specific Christian date These two scholars dispute the 400th part of this anniversary of treaty-making that the Onondagas hope to commemorate. William Starna writes in the Syracuse Post-Standard last summer, quote, It is our responsibility to point out to people who apparently don't know it's a fake that it is. The response from the Onondagas has been quite consistent. They're not concerned so much with the document, but with their own wampum belt. Chief Irving Paulus of the Onondagas told the Syracuse Post-Standard, Every time there was an event... We didn't write things down like you people do. We recorded it in a belt. Oral history is what we go by. Organizer Jack Mano, who's working for the Onondaga Nation, dismissed the importance of this Dutch document entirely. He writes, quote, We are commemorating an understanding of what it means to live together, respecting each other's sovereignty. We are asking New York State and our federal government to seriously consider how it would behave, how it would treat Indian nations and the environment if it honored in word and in deed, the two-row wampum treaty. We are asking each person to explore the meaning of the two-row and subsequent treaties for themselves. This is what we commemorate, not some paper record written in the old Dutch language, but a continuing agreement with this area's original people. This episode illustrates a central problematic and theme in Andrew Newman's eloquent new book on records. What documents do we consider valid, objective, ideal? How do discourse and power shape our values about these documents? Newman explores several controversial episodes in the historical narrative of the Delaware people, or Lenape Indians, digging into divergent memories of a shared past and challenging the dominant conception of documentation and authority. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Andrew Newman, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks for joining me. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate the interview. Sure. So um, I'm really looking forward to discussing your new book. It's called On Records, Delaware Indians, Colonists, and the Media of History and Memory. It was released last year from the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, for reasons that I hope come out in our conversation, I think this book deserves a, a very wide reading, not only by scholars in English and, and Native American studies, your sort of home disciplines, or at least where you're making your home now in academia, but I think for historians uh, more broadly, I think it asks some really good questions. It's a very thoughtful book, even if you're not uh, necessarily doing Native history. So uh, before we dig into that material... Um, I'm hoping you can introduce yourself to the, to our listeners and and talk a bit about um, your your path to this project. Sure. Uh, so I'm a I'm a native of Queens, New York. Uh, grew up in New York City, and now I teach at Stony Brook University out on Long Island, um, living in Brooklyn. And I did my graduate work at the University of California, Irvine. I went there to study early American literature, so I really have a literary studies background, and I was working on a dissertation project that I thought was going to be a literary studies project in many ways. Um, it was on the role of literacy in, uh, in colonial encounters, uh, and you know, sort of specifically about the meaning of books to the colonists when they were in contact situations with Native Americans uh, as, a, as a kind of a marker of cultural identity. But at the same time, I got a, a, a graduate assistantship working in Humanities Out There, which is the outreach program of the School of Humanities at UC Irvine. And we were, I was working in elementary schools in a nearby uh, city called Santa Ana. So I was asked to develop history lesson plans. And I developed one on uh, an, an incident um, called the, the Pennsylvania Walking Purchase in 1737. <laughs> Almost every time it occurs in, in textbooks or um, you know, any, any kind of historical study, it's referred to as the infamous walking purchase. So the story of the walking purchase is that the colonists asked, uh, this is, these were the sons of William Penn, um, the Pennsylvania proprietors, made a deal um, with, the, uh, with the Delaware uh, owners of the land in an area called the Forks of the Delaware, um, where the Lehigh River meets the Delaware River in eastern Pennsylvania. They made a deal for as much land as a man could walk in a day and a half. And it's a very long, complicated history, um, sort of the terms of that arrangement, which maybe I'll be able to talk about a little bit more later in the interview. Uh, but uh, the... Um, the Delawares eventually, after a lot of controversy, agreed to this arrangement um, to have the tract walked uh, by a, a man walking for a day and a half. Uh, and the proprietors hired really sort of like the fastest men in Pennsylvania. They were the equivalent of, of Olympic speed walkers. Mm. Um, and they had them walk at just you know, a tremendous pace. They took in a lot more land than the... Uh, than the um, the proprietors, uh, the native proprietors expected, and uh, it was a, a cause of a lot of uh, a lot of further controversy, and you know maybe eventually even even war. Um, everything about the, the walking purchase was controversial, but I read about it in the fifth graders' history textbook, and I was surprised to find it there because I thought it was a, a fairly obscure incident. Uh, you know, from from my exposure to that point, I designed a lesson uh, in which the student. The students themselves were um, measuring out a day and a half's walk. I, I designed a map and had them 
uh, you know, count paces to figure out how far a man would walk uh, at a normal pace in a day and a half. And then they really got to choose whether they were going to go, uh, you know, try to take in as much land as possible or, or try to, um, you know, be moderate about it and not, um, not try to, uh, you know, maximize or optimize the agreement. And uh, they had a lot of fun with it. I had a lot of fun with it as well. But um, at the same time, they, they got to think very carefully about the way language was used in these agreements. So I had some of the students say things like, well, I don't want to cause a war, so I'm going to put in this clause that says the, um, they can only go as fast as a tortoise or that you know, they had to define walking very carefully. Um, you know, like walking means that you... Um, you don't bend your you don't bend your knee. You don't run when you're going. Um, nobody over 80 years old can participate in this walk. So those were the students who tried not to maximize the agreement, and others were just like, you know, walking as fast as they could and and marking off as much land on the territory as they could. When it came time to write my dissertation, I you know returned to my topic of the role of literacy in colonial encounters, but I kept thinking about that walking purchase material. And I thought, well, this is also sort of about literacy. Maybe I can just include it. And what happened was it kind of took over my, my project. When it came time to make the dissertation into a book, I could either write about this material you know, surrounding the walking purchase and other stories about the Delaware Indians that I uh, was uh, developing towards the project. Um, one of them was the story about the Wallam Olam, which is... It's another another controversial topic in the in the Delaware's uh, history. But the, the Wallam Olam was a pictographic manuscript that first came to re- came to light in uh, in <clears throat> excuse me eighteen thirty seven um, or eighteen thirty six. It was produced by uh, Constantine Samuel Raffinesque, was the supposed editor. Uh, but from the beginning, people thought that maybe Raffinesque created the Wallam Olam, and that wasn't a pictographic history of the Delaware Indians at all. Uh, I had that piece, the Wallam Olam and the walking purchase, and I quickly or eventually realized that I had a whole book about the Delaware Indians and these various controversial episodes. Uh, another chapter is on uh, William Penn's Great Treaty of Peace, which is the founding story of, of Pennsylvania, um, but many historians think that it never took place at all. The story about William Penn meeting the Delaware Indians in 1686 underneath the, uh, the great elm tree by the banks of the Delaware River. It's a famous picture by, or painting by Benjamin West, and everyone in Pennsylvania is familiar with that image. Uh, but historians dispute its, uh, you know, its actual occurrence because there's no documentary evidence of it having taken place. What actually tipped the balance towards the, the project that I ended up writing as my book uh, was the job that I got on Stony Brook University, uh, because I had a little paragraph, really, in my dissertation um, in the Walking Purchase chapter about uh, the story about the first land transaction in New York. It's a, it's a Delaware account that was first written down uh, in the late 18th century by a Moravian missionary named John Heckewelder, uh, who lived among the Delawares for decades and uh, was, you know, became really the primary ethnographic source of information on the Delaware Indians. So the story is that when the um, the Dutch colonists first arrived in New York Harbor, they asked the Delawares for as much land as the hide of a bullock could cover. And the Delawares agreed because it didn't seem like very much land. And then the Delawares uh, 
excuse me, then the, the Dutch colonists took the hide and they cut it up into a long thong and laid it out in a gigantic circle and claimed all the land that it could enclose. I was fascinated by the story, um, which turned out, as, as I, I, I later learned, um, is a classical legend as well. It's the story about um, Queen Dido's foundation of, college, uh, of Carthage in North Africa, um, the colony of Carthage, where she did the, that trick with the bull's hide. And it's written about in Virgil's Aeneid and in uh, other classical sources. So I was puzzled by how the story could also appear in a, a, a Delaware um, a historical account, a native tradition. Uh, but in my dissertation, I wrote, well, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. In any ways, it seems broadly symbolic about the uh, kind of experience that the Delawares and other Native Americans have um, in dealings with colonists. When I got my job at Stony Brook, I, was, I became a regular commuter on the Long Island Railroad. And when you're... Um, it's a, it's a long trip out in Suffolk County. So two stops before Stony Brook is a town called Smithtown. And uh, if you look out the, if you're heading east and you look left uh, towards the North Shore, you see uh, when you pass by Smithtown a gigantic statue of a bull. Uh, and uh, I learned the story about uh, the founding of Smithtown, which was that when... Uh, it was, it was founded in the uh, 17th century by uh, Richard Bull Smith. He made a deal with the Indians for as much land as he could encircle on his bull whisper in 24 hours. It's not really uh, broadly accepted as a historical fact, but it's the legend of the, the founding of Smithtown. So I thought about that story, and I thought about the, the bull's hide story about the founding of New York, and I thought about the walking purchase, and they all seem so similar to one another. Uh, one of them is a documented historical fact. The walking purchase occurred. You know, there's lots of, uh, you know, the language is all written out. There's eyewitnesses and um, depositions and so on. The, story, the native account of the founding of New York is at least, at, at best, a disputed fact, whether, whether or not it took place. Uh, but then the, smor- the story of Smithtown made me start thinking like there's really uh, some sort of folkloric motif going uh, you know, occurring here in, in all of these various stories. And the walking purchase in some sense might be uh, informed by folklore. And it started me looking in, uh, in uh, online journals and doing a lot of searching in, um, in folklore publications. And I came across... Uh, I don't know, about 10 different instances um, of the same oxhide story in, associated with other colonial foundings, by, especially by Dutch colonists, in, uh, for example, in Taiwan and in South Africa, um, by uh, Spanish colonists in the Philippines and by Portuguese, Portuguese colonists elsewhere in the Indian Ocean. And uh, I thought, how... How is it possible that the same oxide story is appearing in all of these different uh, accounts of colonization at all of these disparate sites? It made me realize I had a real chapter to write about the oxide story, and that uh, was the moment where I, uh, you know, I decided this was the project that I had to do. Um, that first chapter on the oxide story, um, excuse me, the first chapter on the Wallam Olam and the and the. Uh, the um, migration, um, the Delaware migration. Excuse me, I'm going to back up for a second. Sure, yeah. Uh, the, the story of the Wallamolam is 
it's a, a representation of another historical account by Heckewelder, or that was first recorded by Heckewelder about the Delaware's um, supposed transcontinental migration from a distant country in the West um, all the way to their eventual homeland in the, um, on the eastern seaboard. So in the Wallam Olam, this account, this narrative is represented by pictographs, um, but the version that was recorded by John Heckewelder was also used broadly. Uh, it appears in James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans, and in, um, it, it's referred to by several uh, 19th century archaeologists, really primarily as evidence that, did, that the Native Americans um, were not indigenous peoples, um, that they came from elsewhere and settled on this land and conquered the people that were already the, uh, you know, the inhabitants of the United States. So Heckewelder recorded the story, I think, innocently enough, but it was put to uh, kind of negative political uses. And then when, uh, when it appeared as the Wallam Olam, uh, the use that I think that it was being put to uh, by Constantine Rapinesque, the supposed editor of the Wallam Wallam, was to say, like, wait a second, these Delawares have have a system of writing. Um, you know, they have this long, um, you know, record of their ancient history. Uh, this qualifies them as a civilized people who uh, have a legitimate claim to their land and don't um, deserve to be removed as the uh, as the Indians were being removed at that time. Um, you know, this was it appeared in the 1830s, so it was really uh, right during the period of Indian removal. So that's the first chapter of the book, um, and then the second chapter is on the bull's hide story, um, which again I, I argue uh, by looking at all of these points of, of cross referencing that the only way that it could be could have appeared in all of these sites as if it actually took place. The, the colonists themselves were so inspired by classical history that they were emulating um, Dido's foundation of Carthage in, in all of these disparate sites in New York, or what is now New York, um, in, uh, you know, in India, um, in South Africa, in the, in the Philippines, and in Taiwan. Yeah, you have a pretty incredible map at some point in there. I, I actually wanted, I wanted to get into both of those things um, a little bit separately, but I'm, I'm hoping before we we do all that and kind of move through some of these stories in a little bit more detail, um, mm-hmm. I was just, you know, you, you said you were born and raised in Queens, which of course is uh, in, you know, traditionally Delaware, Lenape land. When you were growing up, was there a historical, did you have a historical consciousness or uh, interact at all with, with at least even that sort of popular or, or school text history about about where you were? I asked this because, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about it in a place of New York City where you have so many waves of migration and so many changes in the city. And yet, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you from Bushwick right now and you can kind of move through the boroughs and still see Lenape names and things on, you know, streets or something, you know. Um, so I'm just curious what, you know, what your, it, you know, and it would be interesting even if you didn't have any consciousness of it growing up. But uh, if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, no, I, I like that question. I, I was recently reading an, an essay by a literary critic named Jane Tompkins who uh, referred to her own education in New York. I think this might have, must have been in the 1950s. Uh, and, and she says that she was t- told over and over again the story about Peter Minuit's uh, purchase of Manhattan for $24. Right, right. Uh, you know, so, 
That's really New York's founding legend. Um, yeah, Philadelphia's founding legend is the story of uh, William Penn's great treaty of peace underneath the Great Elm. Um, then New York, it's this, you know, this real estate steal. Yeah, Mike uh, Wallace and, and Ed Burroughs talk about that in Gotham, you know, and how. Mm-hmm. You know, as a relatively young city, New York, uh, you know, didn't have the sort of shrouded in myth, uh, you know, origin stories of, of European cities, but but this became its its sort of creation story in a sense. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and I, I think that they point out that the whoever was a, were, were the parties to that transaction, uh, you know, on the native side. Um, probably felt that they were cementing a strategic alliance. Um, you know, certainly they didn't imagine that they were transferring the land in, in perpetuity. Um, you know, that they would have to leave after they uh, after they sold it. Uh, but I prefer the story uh, of the bull's hide, um, which I think is the native counterpart to the Manhattan for twenty four dollars. Uh, you know, in in the sense that I, I think. First of all, it was it was transmitted over many generations by the um, by the Delawares as, as they moved west, and I don't think that they kept repeating the story about the Manhattan, you know, the purchase of Manhattan by by Peter Minuit. Uh, but it also affords a very different perspective on this on a, a first land transaction, um, in a sense, saying that you know we didn't undervalue our land. Um, we the the colonists grossly misrepresented the amount of land that they were purchasing. But back to your question about my awareness growing up in New York, I don't think that I had much. Um, and I don't think that this story of the, um, you know, I, I don't remember being taught the story about the purchase of Manhattan, um, like I think was uh, was done very frequently in previous generations. Uh, I went to summer camp out on Long Island and uh, all of the names of the different, um, you know, bands, they used Iroquois names um, or, or you know, Seneca, Mohawk, and so on. And I, and I think that was done throughout New York State. I, I, maybe in some ways the um, the Iroquois are, are better known in New York State um, than the Lenape, who are more associated with Pennsylvania. Uh, but in a recent, uh, in, for my son's generation, for example, um, he's a graduate of William Penn um, Elementary School in Brooklyn, uh, he had a whole curricular unit on the Lenape, and it's uh, I think it's something of of an educational revival informed by ethnohistorical studies, um, and, and also there's the Manahata project um, that was uh, <clears throat> from the Wildlife Conservation Society. This reconstruction, really a digital reconstruction of Manhattan as a as a um, would have been in 1609 when when uh, Henry Hudson sailed into har- the harbor, uh, and uh, so he identifies the indigenous inhabitants of Manhattan as, as Lenape, which is a little bit of a uh, they wouldn't have necessarily called themselves Lenape. I mean there there were uh, there were various bands, and as as I write about in the introduction, um, the uh, the names Delaware and Lenape are. are in some sense, retroactively associated with the uh, indigenous inhabitants of this whole region of New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and so on. I'm hoping you can um, talk a little bit about some of the terms you use, some of the operative terms you use in the book, particularly uh, collective memory versus individual memory, and also you know language ideology 
and discourse communities. I know those are all three of those things are are all terms that have uh, a lot of literature written on them. Um, but I'm hoping you can sort of demystify those terms a little bit for our listeners and, and talk about why you use them in this book. Sure. Well, so I'll, I'll start with the, um, the the first term that you asked me about, which is collective memory uh, or social memory. And this is a, I'm, I'm borrowing it from a, an interdisciplinary field of study um, called called memory studies. But it's informed largely by sociology, and um, particularly by um, a sociologist who who published in the in the 1930s, um, and then you know was translated later, and, and uh, the translation of his his work uh, caused a sort of a revival of this field. Um, his name was Maurice Holbox, and his insight is that um, even individual memory is always constituted socially. Um, which is to say it's um, constituted through language. Uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a function of the interaction between um, individuals in a group. Uh, and in some ways, memory uh, is a large factor in the development of, of group identity. Um, so you could think about it as, you know, I, you know, I mentioned summer camp earlier when uh, your friends from camp get together. A lot of what you do together is talk about um, you know shared memories, uh, and the, those who don't participate in those memories who weren't there then are uh, therefore outsiders in the group. Um, so that's just a small example of the of the way that social memory can work. But there's a lar- large literature on the importance of memory to national identity. Um, for example, in the United States, uh, well we. We recently had the film Abraham Lincoln, right? And there's a whole tradition of memories of Abraham Lincoln um, as, uh, you know, a a huge symbol of, of, you know, what it means to be American. Uh, So I I think that there hasn't been a lot of intersection between memory studies and Native American studies, even though a lot of what memory studies is about is, excuse me, a lot of what Native American studies is about is, is memory um, they just don't use the same um, theoretical reference points, and uh, even that term, um, you know, social memory and collective memory, doesn't come up a lot in the literature in Native American studies that I've read. And, I, um, language ideology, right? So, language ideology is another interdisciplinary field, and it, it really just begins with the insight that. Uh, you know, I, t- I talked about the role of memory in informing group identity, um, but language as well is a large, uh, you know, has a large function in, in identifying like who's a member and you know who's an outsider in a group. Um, so you know, even the um, you know the common phrase which I remember from growing up um, when somebody tells you "ain't ain't good English," to say so uh, is a value judgment about you know what's good and what's bad in language. And uh, it marks um, people's class identity. Just, you know, the reason that somebody would say "ain't ain't good good English" is to tell you, like, don't sound like a, a lower class person by using the the word "ain't." So that's an example of language ideology. But a lot of language ideology also concerns media, and that's really where uh, where my involvement comes in, uh, because I'm interested in the values that are attached to uh, to different forms of of memory um, or, or, or of records. So, for example, when I was talking about the, the account about the bull's hide, uh, 
if a there had been a document uh, where uh, Dutch colonists had written down, then we did that trick with the bull's hide on the, on the Indians. It would have a lot more historical, it would have a lot more credibility for historians as, a, as an account of an actual event um, because of the appearance of documentary evidence. But my point is that that's also a language ideology to say that something in writing uh, is more, um, more valid or more authoritative than uh, something that was perpetuated for generations uh, in uh, in oral forms as an oral tradition and then eventually recorded. Hmm. Just because you say it's a language ideology doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, but I think it's still important to recognize the value judgments that are attendant on, uh, in some ways, scholarly methodologies. Sure. There was a third term? Yeah, the third one was um, memory or discourse communities. I I talk about discourse communities all the time with my students uh, because uh, it's it's a very basic concept. Um, I'm I'm borrowing it from a a linguist named John Swales, whose book is called Genre Analysis. It's been out for a long time now. Uh, But Swales... um, identifies several characteristics of discourse communities. Um, there's a shared common purpose. Uh, there's a, um, discourse genres. So, for example, when I'm talking to my students and, and explaining how we're at this moment in the classroom participating in discourse community, I point out that um, when they're learning the rules for writing a literary critical essay, um, what they're learning is a discourse genre that enables their participation in this community uh, we have a shared language, um, what Swells calls a, a shared lexis, uh, meaning that we have terms in literary studies that get used differently um, if, you know, in, in, in other sectors, you know, even in, in history or other fields, but have a specialized definition within our, our classroom. So that's a discourse community. Uh, what I lay out in the introduction to the book is that communities of memory, that is, uh, groups like the Delaware Indians and their descendants, or like uh, the original settlers in Pennsylvania, I think, you know, that Anglo-American or German um, settlers in Pennsylvania and their descendants and so on, um, historians, literary scholars, we all participate in discourse communities with our own language ideologies um, and our own uh, media for the perpetuation of memory. So your your first chapter, uh, Lenape Annals, which I actually think is like a very interesting title, um, and and almost suggests some of the points you're making in this book. Uh, you open with this quote from William Penn in 1683, uh, mm-hmm. who's speculating uh, that perhaps the Lenape are uh, of the Jewish race. Uh, he says, "For their original, I am ready to believe them of the Jewish race." You know, it's kind of a striking opening. I had never really heard anybody speculate that in in the colonial era. But you know, what does this kind of speculation reveal uh, uh, in this era? And uh, and why open with it in this first chapter? It, it wasn't such an uncommon speculation. Hmm. Uh, a, a lot of the, I mean, the, the early um, you know colonial. Uh, uh, you know the settlers, the Europeans who came from the old world, were very puzzled by the appearance. Of, you know, once they got over the idea that there was a new world, there's this whole uh, um, you know continent that they hadn't um, accounted for before. Then they had to account for the uh, fact that this continent was inhabited because the Bible 
uh, you know, lays out, uh, or at least you can read for it, the migrations to Africa, um, Europe, and Asia. The um, the question that's raised by the appearance of peoples in the New World was, uh, how did they get here? Are are they of a separate origin, um, or did somehow they, uh, you know, they migrate from the Old World? And one of the theories that was propounded. Uh, was that they were of Jewish origin, that they were from uh, one of the lost tribes. Therefore, perhaps they would be more susceptible uh, to conversion to Christianity. Um, you know, a, a counter-argument or, or theory was that they were descendants of a barbarous race like the Scythians, um, who had a very bad reputation in the classical world, and therefore would not be susceptible to conversion um, and, uh, you know, would... Be perpetually in conflict with the uh, with the colonists. So there was a lot at stake in identifying the origins of the uh, you know, of the Native Americans, and uh, you know, eventually some Native Americans like William Apis, uh, Native American writers, uh, sort of joined in these speculations whether they you know might or may not be descendant from Jews. And what what do we know about what the Lenapes in this period, um, you know, in the in this early period of colonization, were saying about their own origin? And I know that kind of gets us a bit into the Walam Olam and its strange career. But um, you know, in this period, at least, uh, were the Lenapes themselves trying to express to colonial leaders their understanding of their origins? There are two conflicting accounts of origin. I mean, in the in the earliest period, in the, in the 17th century, uh, there's no record of the story of mo- migration from the far west like we have in the Walam Olam. Um, instead, what we have is an account of autochthonous origin, um, which is by far the more prevalent Native American origin story, um, which is to say we have always been in this land. We sprung up in this land and you know we've never left it. So that kind of story has... Uh, a, a larger, um, you know, sort of claim to indigenous land rights. The story that the Lenapes told uh, to um, the early Dutch colonists was that they were um, born on the back of the turtle. Um, that the at the beginning of the world, a turtle rose up from the ocean. Um, a tree sprouted from the turtle, and then, then that tree. Uh, begat the first man and woman um, who were the um, the father and mother of the race. So, and, and I and I think that this is a rather prevalent story um, in the in the native northeast. And in, in any case, this is a story in which the Lenape have always been on the land um, where the colonists first met them. Hmm. So. You know, I know you introduced and you talked a bit about the Walam Olam and, and uh, its perhaps progenitor, this this gentleman, Constantine Samuel Rafinescu Schmaltz. It's quite a name. Yeah. Um, it's Turkish. It's Turkish. That's right. Um, so you trace its, its long, rather odd career all the way up through uh, in 1994 when a, when a PhD student at, I think it was Rutgers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, went through very carefully and, and uh, debunked it or, 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 you know, made a convincing case that it, you know, wasn't a, uh, an authentic representation or something. Um, 
you know, I, I encourage people to, to to get the book and read all the the details of this this fascinating case. But I'm I'm curious if you can talk a bit about what's at stake, you know, in this in this story, or why you uh, traced its its long and strange career. What does it reveal to you? Uh, the the various ways people have understood and presented uh, this unique book. When when I first heard about the Wallam Olam, I was in graduate school and. I, I had uh, I was talking about my dissertation project. I, I had an advisor who suggested to me that uh, I had to find. Uh, I was writing about all of these colonists and what literacy meant to them, and I had to find a Native American uh, form of literacy to write about. I was really sort of just beginning in this field, and I um, I, I read about the Wallam-Olam actually in, in, in some work of his, just a brief mention of it, and I thought, good, I'll write about the Wallam-Olam, this Native American history um, and, and, and pictographs. So I, I at first thought, as many people have thought, that it must be authentic. And uh, it, it was only when I ordered David Ostreicher, who's the anthropology student uh, that you referred to, when I ordered his books through, um, or his dissertation actually, through interlibrary loan, um, that I read what I found was a very persuasive proof that the Delawares never had anything to do with the production of the Wallam Olam. Um, and instead, most likely, um, it was the work exclusively of Constantine Samuel Raffinesque. And I developed an argument uh, around this, which was, of course, different from the argument that I anticipated making when I thought that the Wallam Olam was authentic, uh, uh, which is basically that, uh, in retrospect, it seems very obvious that it was inauthentic, uh, and uh, what was at stake in, in supporting its authenticity and the reason it's been republished so many times and uh, retranslated and, and touted uh, you know, in, the, in the middle of the, um, the 20th century, the Indiana Historical Society did a big study of the Wallam Olam um, sponsored by Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical tycoon, and he touted it as the Native American Iliad, like this great book. Uh, what was at stake was this cultural credential, uh, the idea that if they had a great book, a history of ancient times, then uh, the Na- Native Americans could claim um, this masterwork of literacy and uh, Americans or the um, present-day citizens of the United States could also claim that they had this antiquity that was otherwise missing. But my perspective was that this was to apply a real Western standard of greatness and of cultural value um, to Native American peoples, and that to single out the Wallam Olam as the one Native American great book was really to uh, devalue uh, other other Native American peoples who didn't necessarily have something like the Wallam Olam to claim um, as a representation of their past. I, I uh, so I, I disputed um, those who uh, would claim that the the Wallam Olam um, is a necessary cultural credential, or that it's very important to to demonstrate that Native Americans had writing. Uh, to me, uh, the whole argument that if you don't call what um, their communicative systems writing, you're somehow uh, you know devaluing them, or that it's derogatory not to call a a given form writing uh, is in a sort of paradoxical way to apply this Western cultural value. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it actually reminds me a bit of a, um, 
a discussion that's going on in a contemporary native in some contemporary native land rights struggles. But I'll, I'll return to that in, in a bit. Um, but no, I, absolutely, and it seems to be that's one of your uh, you know overarching arguments when you talk about um, literacy and, and and various forms of language representation is that. The argument is not necessarily to fit everything into one rubric of literacy, but rather not mm-hmm. to devalue other forms of literacy. Is that is that fair assessment? Right, right. And, and so, just to um, you know, to, regarding the Wallam Olam, what, what I'm arguing is that uh, the reception of the Wallam Olam was really motivated by this language ideology, mm-hmm. where, wherein the most important thing that you can say about a culture is that it has writing. Returning to one of the things you mentioned at the outset was uh, this this story that is very familiar to school children in textbooks about William Penn, the Treaty Elm, um, and you write that it's it's uh, the persistence of the schoolbook image represents a small victory for popular tradition over professional historiography. That essentially it's a a popular tradition that even though it might have been challenged by professional historians, it remains at least. Uh, in the popular consciousness at a schoolboy level or a schoolchild level. Um, how did that come to pass in your view? And, and what is it about this story uh, that's illuminating in, in a similar or different way than the Walla Molam? I, I think that the story had, had a, a lot of staying power in Pennsylvania, partly because it, it's such a it's a symbol of peace, and, and that's the way it was sort of pro- proposed over and over again um, as uh, as representing the best virtues of the colonial founders, uh, and uh, and particularly William Penn. So it stayed on for the first couple generations as an oral tradition, um, meaning that the. Uh, you know the, the initial settlers, those who were there in the late 17th century, told their children, who told their children uh, about William Penn's great treaty under the elm. We don't know exactly what they said uh, because it was recorded. Uh, it wasn't record, put into writing um, for a couple generations after it occurred, if it did occur, or I guess you could say after the um, you know William Penn's time in Pennsylvania. But then it got this sort of. Uh, um, charge and real boost uh, out of the production of the um, Benjamin West painting. Uh, it's an iconic painting, and I think probably a lot of listeners might um, might, might have it in mind. But this depiction of William Penn um, and his cohort meeting a group of Indians who are identified as Lenapes, but don't—they're uh, not really wearing. Um, uh, the accoutrements and clothing that would be associated with the Eastern woodlands necessarily. Uh, but anyway, they're received as such. There's a tree in the background of the painting. It doesn't look exactly like the great elm tree that was once standing uh, by the banks of the Delaware and the, uh, or the Delaware river um, near the town of Shackamaxon. But there was a kind of a combination of this widely diffused painting uh, as a commendation of the great treaty by Voltaire, um, who said it was the greatest treaty, and I don't remember his exact language, but, you know, in the annals of history between those people, meaning the Indians and the colonists, um, and the what you could think of as a more organic oral tradition that had been surviving in genera- for generations. So in the late 18th century, 
when when William uh, excuse me when Benjamin West's painting appeared, I think there was a lot of need to think about the Pennsylvania origins as being uh, as being so virtuous. You know, this was a time of the Revolutionary War and breaking with the mother country. Um, there there was. Uh, um, some maybe doubts about the P- Pennsylvania's past um, in terms of its treatment of the Indians. You know, this is now uh, maybe a generation and a half after the Walking Purchase. So, uh, and and um, you know, after the Seven Years' War, when the Lenapes were participating in raids in the uh, in, um, in in Pennsylvania, um, and. <clears throat> You know, so it didn't seem like Indian relations were necessarily uh, as as virtuous and peaceable as the founder might have intended. But by holding on to the memory, they could maybe gloss over some of that recent past. It's you know perpetuated to the present, uh, just like the story of Peter Minowit in New York. Um, it, it seems representative of the of the Quakers and of Pennsylvania virtues. So uh, you know, as uh, as recently as um, well, you know, the, the late twentieth century, um, Pennsylvania governors were referring to this founding legend as the beginning of uh, you know of civil rights in, in Pennsylvania. Um, so they bring it forward, and it's not necessarily referring to Native American relations, but just the spirit of Pennsylvania more broadly. So I wanted to raise uh, – it seems like there's actually some resonance uh, in your in your book with some contemporary indigenous rights issues. I was reminded particularly of a, of a campaign that's going on right now led by the Onondaga Nation uh, and their allies. It's called the Two-Row Wampum Renewal Campaign, uh, which among other restorative and environmental goals uh, is based around honoring the 400th anniversary – of a treaty between the Dutch and the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois Confederacy uh, in what's now upstate New York, just around Albany. Uh, I've been following the campaign closely because I lived in Binghamton, not far from the Onondaga Nation. And um, it's been interesting to watch some professional anthropologists chiming in in the Syracuse newspaper, for instance, and casting doubt uh, on the treaty's veracity, disputing the 400th anniversary claim, uh, but to me, and and you know, frankly, it seems to many Onondagas that that not only belittles their oral and material tradition, they still have the wampum belts, uh, but also sort of misses the point of the campaign, which is not so much about the 400 years precisely, but about the repeated uh, treaty process, the spirit of treaties, uh, which they're calling on uh, the U.S. and New York to honor. Uh, that's just one example, but I'm, I'm I'm curious. You know, there there have been many land rights issues around treaties that raise all sorts of questions about the oral tradition versus the written tradition, and I'm wondering if you see uh, you know any resonance or or if you were when thinking through this book you uh, could see any connection with any of any sort of contemporary indigenous struggles or, or how you might think through some of those issues. I can certainly see the the parallel to the Onondaga case that you mentioned, um, and really, it's it, it's largely about a different way about thinking about memory and, and records. So, in in, in re- preserving and, and reading the wampum belts, they're keeping a memory alive in in a very different way than uh, you know a, a written treaty document might do. So. 
I mean, I, I agree uh, with, with your suggestion that, um, you know, for uh, historians to say, well, this never happened, um, you know, because we don't have the document proving that it happened, um, it, it really is missing the point, uh, because in some sense, the, um, the, the wampum records are not just a documentation of a, of a past event, but a way of, of keeping that event alive uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, renewing the treaty o- over and over again. So uh, the, the argument that it didn't take place because we don't have the, uh, the written document um, is something that I refer to in the book as archival positivism, um, mm-hmm. the belief that if we don't have the document, then it didn't happen. Um, and I don't think that the burden of proof should be on the uh, the proponents of an oral tradition to to prove that something took place, you know, to find this missing document. Hmm. So as we get towards the end of our time together tonight, I, I want to end, as you do, uh, with the chain of memory, uh, particularly this chain of memory you suggest that connects um, the present day Delaware nation, which is predominantly, or, or at least it's, it's sort of national base is in, is in Oklahoma. Um, and connecting them with, with this individuals that whose re- remains were found on, on Ellis Island and Liberty Island by construction workers in 1985. It's the story you, you begin the final chapter with that I, I found was really interesting. And I hadn't, uh, known about that. Um, what is the chain of memory, um, that you're suggesting here? The, the chain of memory is a, a phrase that gets used in memory studies to describe an oral tradition. And uh, so I mean, I'll, I'll get to the specific chain that I'm talking about. But the, um, in general, that phrase, the chain of memory, refers to the communication of a tradition from one generation to the next generation. Or as I find in the book, it's often skipping generations where um, it's the, the grandparents' generation telling the children, excuse me, telling the grandchildren, um, and uh, that way, you know, if a generation is something like 25 years, um, we see something like you know 80-year links in the chain over uh, over uh, you know that can span a, a very long time. So you know, as we were just talking about with the difference between the document and the oral tradition involving uh, involving wampum. Uh, the chain has, as the metaphor suggests, more of a connecting value uh, so that you can, in, in a sense, map out the perpetuation of this communication um, over many generations. And it's an, a, a chain or a filament that connects one generation to another. It's not simply that the information is transferred, but that you can also look back and say, like, I got this from my grandfather who got it from his grandfather uh, and, and that's something that we see all the time in, in, in Native American writing, right? Um, it's just not necessarily referred to um, in, in terms of memory studies. So I, I was interested, uh, very interested in reading about the uh, accidental discovery of Native American remains on Ellis Island um, during the construction of the um, the Immigration Museum or the the renovation of the immigration museum um, in the 1980s and the parks workers who found the, um, these remains, uh, you know, following the Native American Graves and and Repatriation Act um, contacted the peoples who were historically associated with the region, um, which were were Delawares and Muncie's. 
and uh, when the the party of um, you know, they, they came from Oklahoma and from Canada, um, from the you know the present uh, Delaware and Muncie communities uh, back to New York, and it's it's, it's fascinating reading their uh, their account of this visit because, as you mentioned earlier, there are all these Lenape place names, and there's some sort of you know, vestigial memory of the of the presence here, um, that connection. Uh, but I uh, I associated the story of the um, the discovery of these remains with the earliest recorded uh, version of the oral tradition of the. Uh, the Lenape Antogenesis, the story about the coming into being on the back of the turtle, um, which was recorded in the late 17th century um, by Dutch missionaries. Uh, uh, a Lenape or Muncie man named Tantake told them the story. And uh, he's an interesting uh, figure. He was in his 80s already, or at least you know, that's, that's how they recorded his age. So he'd been alive at the be, you know the very beginning of colonization, or even before, um, you know, before the arrival of the Europeans, and therefore he would have had memories of the time before Europeans came, um, and uh, he lived through this period of you know of really enormous change. Um, but the the point is is that the the story about the coming into being, the creation story. Uh, is in some ways uh, a New York story um, in, in the sense that it is uh, it's you know it's of a land surrounded by water um, you know like the uh, you know the New York archipelago and uh, you know it's it's very different um, from a story of, of Oklahoma it has a sort of association with this East Coast landscape um, that um, it wouldn't have had with the lands that the Delawares presently occupied. So we could argue that it uh, it preserves a memory of the of their ancient or ancestral homeland, uh, and it's uh, the the turtle you know remained a large part of the um, Delaware ceremonial culture you know into the twentieth century and into the twenty first century. So that it might seem sort of vague, but you can trace a chain of memory that would connect the uh, you know present-day Delawares in Oklahoma um, back through the, those of Tantake's generation, um, you know, at the beginnings of colonization, um, and back before, um, you know, centuries earlier uh, to the individuals whose remains were, um, were buried on Ellis Island. So that's the chain that I conclude the book with. That's a very powerful way to conclude the book. Um, so I've been speaking with Andrew Newman. He's the author of On Records, Delaware Indians, Colonists, and the Media of History and Memory was released last year from the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, before I let you go, Andrew, I know you just finished uh, or just published this book, which is quite an achievement. But I also like to ask before I let folks go if if you're working on anything now or at least speculating on anything now uh, for for a next project. Well, I have all this material left over from, from the dissertation project that I described to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I am... I, I'm making it new, um, but I, I am writing about the role of literacy in cultural encounters, uh, and uh, I, I feel like it's been really very much enriched by my um, uh, the process of writing this book, uh, and uh, you know what for me has been a, a, a great involvement in Native American studies, uh, which isn't where I imagined uh, myself going when I started out writing this. Mm.
Can I just ask uh, what it's like to teach Native American studies um, at SUNY Stony Brook? I, I ask only because my, while I'm a graduate of SUNY Binghamton, my real exposure to Native American studies as a discipline was was in the South, and I, uh, which has its own you know sort of ways of dealing with with popular memory and Native American history. So um, just just as a way to conclude, what's that like teaching at SUNY Stony Brook uh, Native American studies? How do students receive the material? It, it's a good question. Uh, and I, I'm particularly teaching early Native American studies. Uh, so uh, um, I, I used a, a book recently on the um, early Native literacies in New England, um, which is edited by um, Christina Bross and Hilary Wiss, and, and it contains a lot of forms that are very difficult for the students, um, like a, a basket, and, and um, there's a description of a Pequot medicine bundle. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm stretching the students' ideas of, of what constitutes writing and, and literacy. Uh, I don't think that the students bring a lot of... Um, of, of knowledge of, of native studies, um, you know, to the class. So it's, it's, it's very new to them. Um, and I think it would be different teaching in the South. Uh, it was also, it was interesting for me being an early Americanist in California, uh, where, uh, you know, there seems such a dissociation between the region, um, and the field of study. So for the, um, for the students at Stony Brook, I think probably a lot of them had uh, experience like I did growing up uh, with some familiarity with the, uh, the names of the Haudenosaunee um, tribes, um, you know, so-called the day camp experience of Native American mm. culture. Um, but uh, beyond that, I, I think it's very unfamiliar material for them, and especially the early stuff. Uh, so, you know, some of them asked me, are you going to be talking about shamanism uh, and, uh, or, you know, or... Um, you know that they're ready to read like the you know 20th century Native American literature, which might be a little bit more familiar with them. Um, you know something like Smoke Signals, the 19th and 19th century and earlier uh, is is pretty foreign for them. Interesting. Well, Andrew Newman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the interview. You've been listening to a discussion with Andrew Newman author of On Records, Delaware Indians, Colonists, and the Media of History and Memory. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past interviews free of charge, or on iTunes, where you can download the podcast. We're also on Facebook, where you can leave comments, questions, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.